Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we're bringing you another in our series called Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners, and the world, details of their courageous, sub rosa, self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. My purpose in creating this series is to counter the decades of disinformation about psychedelics and inform the world that prominent, good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers have risked their careers and their livelihoods in order to learn from psychedelics while anecdotally advancing science. My guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics for this Psychedelic Elders interview is journalist Cliff Barney. Cliff was born in 1929. Yes, that makes him 91 years old. He grew up in Rhode Island, the only child of a father who was the first of his family to leave the farm in 250 years in Swansea, Mass, and a mother whose family immigrated from Scotland in the late 19th century. While neither of Cliff's parents got past the fifth grade in school, they nonetheless managed to send Cliff to Dartmouth College, from which he graduated with an A.B. in 1951. During Cliff's long and very prominent career as a journalist, he has written for major United States dailies, including the famous Philadelphia Inquirer and the Hearst-run San Francisco Examiner. Cliff covered the semiconductor and computer revolutions in Silicon Valley as bureau manager for McGraw-Hill Electronics Magazine. He has studied and taught at the San Francisco Gestalt Institute, and he holds an MS in counseling from California State College in Hayward. Cliff Barney has written about the press, aging, and Latin American politics in a blog called Cliff's Notes. You can find that at cbarney.wordpress.com. I repeat, cbarney, that's B-A-R-N-E-Y, cbarney.wordpress.com. And he has also written about contemporary Mayan culture in another blog at carolinamccall.com. C-A-R-O-L-I-N-A McCall.com. That's a website that he runs with his artist wife, Carolyn. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Cliff. Thank you. So let us begin. I think we, we already began with a commentary on your age. You're 91 years old, is that correct? You got it right that time. <laughs> and When's your birthday? It's very interesting. It's September 11th, in which there, there are two disasters. Aside from my birth, two disasters. One was the overthrow of the Chilean government uh, and 
The other, of course, was uh, the attack on the World Trade Center. Yes, on September 11th. And presently, you're living with your wife, Carolyn, is that correct? Should I get that right? That is right. Cliff, I mentioned your parents, your father, who was the first to get off the farm in 250 years, and your mom, whose family came over from Scotland. Did they bring you up with religion? They did. They sent me to a, a religious school in Providence in the seventh, eighth, and ninth grades. It was attached to an Episcopalian church, and uh, I sang in the choir here for them, and Rainer was an altar boy. And what is your present conception of God? I don't have one. None whatsoever? Not really. I don't think about God in that respect. And I'm a member of the church now. I'm in fact a deacon in the uh, uh, Skyland Community Church in, uh, in Santa Cruz. I go to church every Sunday. Is there any conception of God that's referenced in the church there where is. you go? And what is it? It's just it's, it's sort of a passing reference. I don't exactly know how to how to conceptualize it, but simply since uh, we read scripture, the Bible, and uh, uh, God's name comes up occasionally, and, and particularly, what, particularly Jesus. And what brought you to going back to church? It happened when I when I moved to uh, Santa Cruz uh, from Berkeley uh, some years ago, and I. I my wife and I rented a, a home on the on the property of, of an interesting couple uh, we became close friends with, and uh, they were going someplace every Sunday morning. We didn't know where, and they said, "Why don't you come with us?" And so one day, and I did, and I was really totally blown away by the church service because it was so informal, uh, and. Uh, People didn't mind about babies crying or anything like that. They just incorporated it. And I found that the, that the people that I met there were, they were just, everybody was so cooperative and friendly. And uh, I wanted to join that group. And I made some close friends during, that, during, during the time I've been with the church. And uh, I'm very supportive of it. I'm, I mean, having experienced, you know, the, uh, the Episcopal Church, when I was a kid, uh, I think this is the first church I've really been to since then. And uh, I went there as much for the people as anything else, because there's, they just, they were re they're all remarkable people, uh, in the sense that they have, they have really good relationship with, with each other, and there are no noticeable feuds. People care. And very, whenever anybody wants something done, many people volunteer. It's that sort of, that sort of group. I, I, was, I was very happy to become one of them. I still am. Some years ago on this program, I interviewed uh, Nick Butner, the brother of Dan Butner, and the two of them uh, have become quite world famous for their work on something called the Blue Zones. The Blue Zones are the five places in the world where people live the longest and the healthiest. And they have many centigenarians who are actively working, including doctors doing surgery at age 100. And one of the things, they, they, they extracted nine principles from the five zones where people live the longest. And one of the principles relates to your going to this church on Sunday, which is all five of these uh, groups belong to some kind of faith-based or some kind of community activity that they go to on a weekly basis. And the Butners think that that alone adds five years or seven years to a person's life, the camaraderie that is experienced in those activities. And that sounds like part of the reason that you go. I mean, the main reason you go is for the camaraderie. Um, 
how old were you, Cliff, when you had your first experience with mind-altering substances? I was, uh, I was 40 years old. Do you, you remember the experience? It was uh, 50 years ago. I, I remember it vividly. Please tell us about it. Well, it arose through uh, my friend Paula Reineking. You know, you know, I think you knew Paula. Yes. And Paula was living with a musician, Mike Wilhelm, who had played with the Charlatans, which was one of the first acid rock bands. And uh, I, had been, I had been interested in psychedelics for, at that time for like 15 years, but interested from a distance. Because what first turned me on was reading Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, which came out in the 1950s. And I was living in Rhode Island. I was in my 20s. Uh, I said, boy, that sounds really interesting. I want to do this. But the, the, uh, the opportunity never came up until I was in San Francisco in the 60s, the late 60s. And uh, uh, Paula and Mike acted all the time, and they invited me to come with them to, to experience it. And I jumped at the opportunity, and we all drove out to Point Reyes uh, on Sunday morning, I think it was, and, uh, and took these little purple pills. I had no idea what they were. Mike said that they were uh, 300 microgram LSD. I'm not sure to this day if that's what they were. Anyway, uh, I took, we had four pills for the three of us, and we each took one, and nothing happened for a long time. So I surreptitiously took the fourth pill. <laughs> and, and almost instantly, uh, I felt a, a transformation of, of my feelings and everything. I was simply simply I think expanded in some way. And uh, however, uh, we had driven out, Mike had, Mike had uh, picked up some driftwood and built a fire. And uh, I suddenly became interested in the sand. And I, and I saw that there were parts of Point Reyes Beach where the sand has bigger grains than, than normal. You think of the beach sand, they were, they were the little grains were bigger, and so I got down on my hands and knees and started looking at these grains of sand. And I spent most of the afternoon looking at sand. And uh, uh, it was a miraculous experience. And uh, when we finally left, I couldn't drive micro back into San Francisco. And uh, I dropped them off at, at their apartment and uh, said, I can take it from here. And uh, I drove home across Franklin Street in San Francisco. I was living on Bay Street. And I got about halfway to my destination when all of a sudden, I sort of lost all, all sense of who the hell I was or what I was doing. I was absolutely frightened. And I managed to pull the car over to the side of the street. And I stayed there for Maybe, maybe an hour, kind of terrified to do anything. And my, my senses had gone away. All I, I experienced everything with this kind of gloomy mass out there. And uh, it was an incredible experience. I didn't like it one single bit. But it finally passed, and I decided I could make it all the way home. And I found that I'd forgotten red lights and, and green lights, which was which. And which meant stop and which meant go. I couldn't remember. So, so I just took a chance at a moment when everything was clear. I don't know if I went to, to this day, I don't know if I went to a red light or not. But anyway, I did get home and said, thank God. I parked my car. I went into my apartment where I was living alone at the time. And uh, I thought, okay, this is it. I'm safe. Except I wasn't. I just still felt that fright of something, something. I didn't know what it was, but I, whatever it was, I didn't like it. So I went upstairs to where a couple of friends of mine were knocked on their door. 
I told them what had happened. I said, look, I took, I took some acid and I can't come down. And so uh, they invited me in, we made tea. And uh, I, I just sat around with them for a while and I, I picked up a newspaper and I, I remember reading an item, a little one-inch item about some people who had been killed in an automobile crash. And it just filled me with such sorrow that I broke down in tears. And I, I couldn't really behave normally at all until reading a book of poetry by Robert Frost. And uh, I had never been a big fan of Robert Frost, but when I started reading the, his poems, it, it instantly kind of brought me down. Uh, it, that is, it, it made me... I, could, I felt that I knew what every line was, was going to be. And uh, it, it, it kind of what it brought me into back into normal reality. I was quite happy to be there, and I went downstairs and went to bed. And the next morning I woke up and I just felt wonderful. Was, uh, I, I just felt like a different person, and I'm happy to be a different person. And uh, subsequently, I took acid every chance I got. Well, that's fascinating because on the one hand, you describe a frightening experience, and then so frightening that you pulled the car over and sat in it for an hour, and then you get back to your apartment and you're still f having an unpleasant experience. You drop in on some friends, things quieted down after you read Frost, but you wake up the next morning feeling great and you want to do it again. <laughs> do you have some? Do, do you have some sense that you can share with us? about what was there that happened even within the frightening that led to your saying, I'm going to do this again. It was, I can tell you that very clearly, it was a sense that there was something out there other than what I was normally experiencing. That my normal life was not necessarily all that there was to life. I couldn't wait to get back into that other place. And for the first few acid trips I took, I, I had bad trips almost every time. You had what's called bad yeah. trips? Scary. You get the sense of, if I don't do something, something awful will happen, you know? Yeah. So it was a sense, uh, not necessarily words or particular events that were scary, but there was some kind of a feeling that we describe as a sense of like imminent doom. Yeah. That's right. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> eventually, no... I the... <laughs> eventually, I got to the point where when that happened, I said, okay, you've been here before. Uh, and uh, I was able to get through that. And it didn't happen. I don't think it's happened since. So you, you conquered the fear. Well, it, I don't know if I conquered it or not, but it well, went you, away. You mastered it by, by, by saying... Well, I've been through this before and nothing terrible happened. So I guess I can go through it again and nothing terrible will happen. And then I can get on to other right. stuff. Yeah, that's true. What was some of the other stuff you got onto in those early LSD experiences? Do you recall? I took LSD everywhere. I mean, I didn't pay any attention to uh, Larry's suggestion that, you know, uh, that the surroundings were important. I took it. Down, going downtown, I, I took it driving, and I, I just took it whenever I felt like it. And uh, at that time, I was, uh, sometime after that, I began living with Sue Seven, and uh, we used to go to back to the beach and take acid on, on weekends. And uh, that all stopped when Sue got pregnant, and she decided that she wouldn't take any drug. And uh, so I had, I had no more. I mean, they didn't have that companion to do it, to do it, to do it. And, uh, and I still kept thinking it, thinking after myself every chance I got. And uh, I don't, looking back on it, I don't think it was such a great idea because uh, knowing that this interview was coming up and remembering that what turned me on first was Huxley's book, uh, The Words of Perception. Which incidentally, uh, I learned 
provided uh, two mods and with the name for the band. Uh, and being high on acid in the downtown street is not the, not the greatest experience that uh, I ever had, but I did it anyway because I just, I just couldn't get away from that wonderful feeling that I was in a different place than I had been for 40 years. And that it was, it was, it was exciting. I was, I was happy to be in this different place. So I went back every chance I could. And uh, that went on for a long, long while. Eventually, I just stopped doing it because LSD, I found, uh, took a lot of energy out of me. Uh, it was, I don't know how to say it, but it was tiring to do it. I felt it was taking stuff out of my body, so I eventually stopped doing that. Do you have some uh, rough guess as to how many times you took it during that era? Well over 100. Well over 100. And when you say it was tiring, was the fatigue effect the following day or the days thereafter? What can you tell us about the during, fatigue? During the experience. During the yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. And can you recall, I mean, we're going back now 40, 50 years. Can you recall how long the events took from the time you took the uh, the, the substance, the, the LSD, until it, you were sort of back to what you'd call normal reality? Seven or eight hours. Seven or eight hours. Well, that is a long period to be in a, in a changed state. And can you recall some of the um, experiences that gave you a different perception of reality or things that you learned that you said, oh boy, this is something I want to remember? I, I wouldn't put it that way, Richard. Okay. Uh, it wasn't that I learned anything special. I just had this experience of being in a different place. And that the fact that there was a different place was what excited me. You know, the, fact, the fact that there was another reality that I had had no clue about for most of my life. And while I hadn't been all that bad a life, uh, uh, I was simply excited to find that there was another one. And I liked that. So what you if I understand you, what you're saying is what was most enjoyable was your sense of living in a different reality. Exactly. That there was a different reality. That, that there actually was a different reality. Right. And when you took the LSD, were the LSD realities similar to one another? Or were they very different each time? That's a hard one. It is. Uh, of course, they were different, but in a sense, I mean, they had an overall similarity in that I wasn't where I normally was. Yes. Yes. But and but and but and when you took these over hundred trips, would you say that a a relatively high percentage of them, like over seventy five percent of this? of these experiences were with 300 or 250 or more micrograms? Micro, yes, yes. Yes, yes, definitely. Okay. And did you learn to navigate everyday life with 300 micrograms? Like, could you walk down the street? Did you actually drive a vehicle? Tell us some of the of things that you did. I actually. At the time, I wasn't working for McGraw Hill anymore, but uh, they caught when they had a problem in San Francisco. They they called me up and said, "You know, could you still in here for a while?" So I did, and I actually interviewed a fellow named C. Lester Hogan, who was a 
who was a big wheel in the early days of Silicon Valley. He was, at that time, the chief executive officer of Fairchild Semiconductor. I actually interviewed Russ after I had taken acid. Did you think he had any sense whatsoever that you were in that altered state? If he did, he didn't mention it. He didn't mention it. He didn't like mention it. Rack and like it. when and you conducted when the you interview, conducted the interview, did you take notes? Did you, or did you have a recorder? How did you memorialize the interview? I had a re- I had a little recorder that I used. And and how did you get to the interview? I drove. So you drove a vehicle in an urban environment with 300 micrograms of LSD in your system. I did. Look, looking back on it, does it seem remarkable? It seems crazy. And, and, other events you learned to navigate as well? Did you eat meals while you were under the influence? Or did it take, took away your appetite? No, I can't remember that. I mean, it wasn't, certainly wasn't important. Um, what about sexual activity? Did you have engage in sexual activity while you were under the influence of this medicine? I did. And what, what can you share about the difference between what you might call sober or straight sexual activity and sexual activity with 300 micrograms of LSD? Unbelievably wonderful. <laughs> that sums it up in a headline, <laughs> eh? And, and yeah. your senses were different? Your tactile senses, were they different? Tell us what you can remember about the differences. I know this is, I realize this is difficult. We're going back 50 years, of course. Uh, all, all I know is, all I can remember really is that uh, my sex life just really improved. Whether or not I had acid, whether or not I had taken acid, but when I had taken acid, it, it was, you know, I'd always had a good time with sex, who doesn't? But, uh, uh, this was something different, it was particularly when I had taken acid and when the other person had taken LSD. Uh, it was, and there was just a, a loose, I don't know, a looseness about it, a freedom about it, you know, that uh, it was glorious. Would you recommend that, uh, that couples who are able uh, experiment and take LSD for their sexual activity? Would I recommend it? Yes. Yes. I don't normally recommend that people do anything. Okay. I mean, okay. If they said, should we do this? I would probably say, you know, go ahead. Right. Right. I hear what you're saying. I, I hear your wisdom coming through in terms of not recommending uh, what other people do. So I appreciate that and I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, now, for how many years, roughly, did this uh, experimentation go on that allowed you to take over a hundred uh, trips? Well, well, three or four years, I think. Strangely enough, it, it, it ended. That part of the, of the, the experience ended when I moved up. When, I, when Stu and I separated, we had had a child. And uh, uh, we were not married. We had still so bought a house in Marin County where we lived. And uh, she got so interested in the baby that I felt I had, I had been uh, eliminated from her life. And uh, so I, I moved up to uh, the Napa Valley and spent the next three years there with uh, congenial group of people who did take a lot of drugs, but not so much acid. And when you moved in with those folks, did you experiment with other uh, psychedelics? You said you mentioned that they did. Did you? No, we had 
I remember we had a we had a uh, a religious uh, program going on at one time with mostly Buddhists, but where we had ten or twelve people coming up and spent time with a with a lama, and uh, and the final day of that session, when the lama was sitting at the kitchen table, which was a which was a cable reel. Uh, Paula had, had uh, fixed up, uh, and uh, a friend of ours came down the road to the to the house, walked into the kitchen, and plumped down on the table a huge bag of fresh peyote butter that he had apparently brought from Texas. So he ate them, and then uh, that was a, another experience. Peyote was really hard to eat, but the experience was. Wonderful, it's somewhat mellower than uh, LSD, oozing on the body, uh, but extremely, extremely vanity. Everything began with Mexican. Uh, but then later, later I, uh, uh, I, I visited uh, a house in Fort Bragg, as it happened, and uh, after the first rains in the fall, I see Amanita muscaria mushrooms growing everywhere. There are those red top mushrooms with white dots on them that you see, interestingly enough, you see in all the children's, all the children's books that the mushrooms are there, they're usually amanitas. And uh, so I, I brought those amanitas, we brought them home and I ate the amanitas, which uh, made me very sick, sick in my stomach, that is. And uh, I was not happy with it, but I finally was able to vomit it up. And as soon as I had, I was filled with this incredible sense of well-being and strength. It was, uh, uh, it was quite an, an interesting experience. Uh, I, did, I never repeated it because it, was, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't getting there, but once I was there, it was, it was, uh, it was quite valuable. Isn't there a part of the Amanita muscaria that needs to be removed before ingestion that causes that, that toxicity? I seem to remember there's something underneath that needs to be scraped out. Well, I think nothing near peyote, because they have this fluff in peyote. <laughs> Incidentally, I, I remember another incident where uh, Fallon and I had gone to uh, San Andres Cojamiata, which is in the Sierra Madre Mountains, and it was a place where Huicho Indians had been more or less forced to go after they Huicho lived on the coast for a long while, but when the Spanish got there, they drove them out. And we went up to, to we, we knew some Huicho because they, they would come down to uh, uh, Puerto Vallarta and Yalapa, the little Mexican town where we were living, and they would bring their beaded goods and sell them. So we had made some friends. So we went up there for Holy Week. Uh, the Spanish had built a, uh, built a church there. And, and uh, but they left because they couldn't stop the Ritos from sacrificing the animals at the altar. So uh, we went up and uh, uh, I asked a friend of mine who was Rito that he would get me some buttons. We have to go through a the faraway desert to get them. And uh, before that happened, I was out one day with a notebook, making notes because I was going to write about it, and I was arrested by the, the, the local police, the regional police, they call them they were all in blackface, and they brought me to uh, a, a building where six or seven men were sitting behind a, behind a wooden plank, and I noticed that they had Little, every one of them had little piles of fluff in, in front of them, which I recognized as something that you, you take out of the peyote button before you eat it. And I thought, these guys are all stoned. And I've never had any experience of being before a judge who was, who was complete, you know, who was uh, on a trip himself. And uh, they let me off with a fine of a pack of cigarettes. Uh, Quite reasonable. Yeah, I thought so. But that's, I think, I mean, the, the fluff we, we do get rid of in the peyote. I don't, I'm not aware of anything that 
on the mushroom that we're going to eat. People say not that amanitas are poisonous. It's a, it's a, it's a, a variety called amanita phylloides, I think it is. It is yes. Uh, amanita muscarias are not, although they, they were supposedly the uh, psychedelic used by Russian shamans. People would drink the urine of the shaman if they didn't have enough mushrooms to eat. They would all get stoned. Now, while this is going on, you over a hundred experiences with LSD, and then you're experimenting to a certain extent with uh, with peyote. Uh, that one time with Amanita muscaria. What effect is this having on your journalistic career, if any? I dropped out. You dropped out of your journalistic career for seven years. But I it, dropped back in later on. Yes. Uh, uh, it went fine. I, you know, I was a different person. I was felt that all of those experiences had, had rightly covered any sanity. That, that, uh, I, had, I realized that before I, I, I had become a, a kind of weird, sarcastic uh, uh, person who was highly critical of everything. And, uh, I changed. And, and I've always been grateful for it. Randas says, if you get the message, hang up the phone. But I've always felt that maybe things are changing. You might want to call in again. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in having another experience. You're, you're interested in having another a psychedelic experience. How long has it been since your last one? No, I can't remember. Decades? Decades? Yeah. yeah. I took yeah. some acid when I was living up in Napa. But, uh, that, so that was 40, 50 years ago. 40. Oh, and there was, once again, when we were back in Berkeley, uh, on New Year's Day, I got together with a bunch of friends. And Carolyn uh, uh, and I and they took took LSD. And uh, it was fun. That, that must have been sometime in the 70s. Would you say that your experience with psychedelics has been predominantly with your eyes open and looking around and experiencing the world, or predominantly with your eyes closed looking within, or some combination of both? How would you characterize? Mostly with my eyes open, but there definitely was. There were times when you know I would just I would just sit and, and experience what was happening. But mostly my eyes are open. Did you get a, a handle on this sarcasm that you described of yourself? Did you get a handle on that during a psychedelic experience? I think I got the best handle on it, Richard, from you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you want to tell well, that story tell a little that bit? Story a little I, bit? I, was a, I, was a, a, I had been in therapy at the Marin County Family Therapy Institute with my second wife. And uh, uh, when that was over, I, I, for a while I was in a group run by Marty Kirschenbaum, I think you know Marty. And uh, he suggested that you know if I were really interested in therapy, which I was, I, I, I had never in that kind of therapy before, and he suggested I might get accepted into the Gestalt Institute in San Francisco because they were they were kind of opening up to uh, uh, non-professionals. Mostly it was for professional psychologists who wanted to learn about uh, Fritz Perls' methods for therapy. But they let me in anyway. And uh, everybody said that you and your partner, Larry Bloomberg, were 
kind of wild men who did what they pleased. So I immediately signed up for being one of your groups, and uh, I couldn't get away with it. Normal, sarcastic <laughs> techniques. You just jumped on me, and uh, I listened. So I'm all been grateful for that, Richard. Thank you. You're welcome. I remember well. You had a a very sharp and cutting New York uh, sarcasm. It was sophisticated, but it was it, but it was it was quite sharp. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you you were in that uh, Noel Coward kind of back uh, <laughs> indeed, uh, which. You know, an, an interest. A man said something interesting to me recently, who'd come out here not too long ago from New York, and he said, "You know, the main difference between, for me, he said, between New York and California, he said, in in New York, everybody breaks the rules, and everybody knows that everybody's breaking the rules, and and everybody's sarcastic and has mouths, and that's how it is." He said, but out here in California, he said, hardly anybody breaks the rules and people seem to try to be nice to each other rather than sarcastic. And it's, it's a very different culture. It is. I remember when I first got here, I lived in North Beach and, and I went, I used to go to for dinner at the family restaurant that they had around in, in North Beach. And I would sit down at a table with a whole bunch of other people and I'd open up my book. And uh, I remember that the proprietor of the uh, restaurant came over to me and says, what are you doing with that book? Put it away and talk to these people. <laughs> yeah, understood, understood. So I want to hear some more about the actual experiences because you're describing experiences that are markedly different from what we are recommending and have been recommending, and you know that. And you, you referenced how Leary, way back 50 years ago, was already commenting on the setting. And nowadays, you know, the holy grail of taking psychedelics is set and setting. What your mental set is, right? What you're going into it with, what your intention is, and the setting. And the setting that we recommend is always a setting of quiet, of either nature or on a beach, or if you're in a house with all the machinery off, so that you can really grasp the quiet and be with it in order to learn as much as possible from the medicine. You did the flip side of that. You went about your everyday life um, with, with, with the medicine and, and learned how to navigate and, and learned how to navigate everyday life while you were in, from your subjective experience, a different reality. Yeah. Looking back on it, I, I don't think that was the greatest idea. Uh, you don't? You don't, I, I don't think that was, that was the best way to, to uh, experience it. Well, yeah, but that's what you had way back then, of course. That's what I had. Yeah, I, yes. wouldn't, I wouldn't give it away for anything. Yes, yes. And when you had the psychedelic experiences back then, were they mostly with another person or a group, or did you also take it alone? I also took it alone. With a group whenever possible, but... Uh, wasn't always possible. I see. And so I took frequently alone. And what can you tell us about the difference when you took it alone? I was alone. You were alone. So you were, was that going to, were those experiences more like um, inner looking in rather than out or not necessarily? You might just go out and. I would just go out and see what happened. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Now, have you? Have, you're a journalist. Have you written about your psychedelic experiences? I wrote about that first one, but it, it never got published anywhere. I sent it to High Times, but uh, 
it was too long, I think. Uh, Mike, Mike Wilhelm, who they played with the Charlatans, which was the first real acid band, he said he, he really liked it. But, but uh, I haven't really, I, I didn't write about the other things because they weren't that memorable. And and I'm not your best subject for learning about taking acid because I did it so so I don't know. But this is a very this is an important interview, Cliff, because if if most of the other elders will see how it shakes down, you know, we're we're much more careful about sentence setting. You're bringing us information about what happens when you take it over a hundred times and you weren't so careful with sentence setting. And yet you're still here and you did not bump your car into things on the road. You did not have terrible things happen to you. Uh, you know, you, you survived it. So it, it, it's, this is also important information. At the time, again, going back so far, did you share these experiences with friends and colleagues? Was it a topic of conversation? No, it wasn't. I didn't normally. I didn't normally. Because, you know, hearing about, hearing about somebody else's acid trip is not always that interesting. So. Did you, was there any um, concern on your part that if you talked about it with colleagues, you might get in some kind of trouble or they might think less of you or was there any of that? I, no, I didn't feel that. Yeah, the people I was beginning to know didn't, uh, wouldn't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say that um, you brought from that reality information wisdom, material, that you use then in your regular reality? Uh, probably. I, I don't think of it that way, but I know that over time, I have managed to, to change in, in ways that I like. And, uh, so I wouldn't give away that experience for anything. But looking back on it, I feel that sort of wasted a lot of it. Uh, and, and I got reading, reading uh, uh, Aldous Huxley's book. It seems to me that he got more from one trip of mescaline than I got from, from 100 trips of rap. <laughs> this book is really, uh, really worth reading. Which one? The Doors of Perception? Yes. 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 Which is yeah, from Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Listening the thing that really got me interested in, in the first place, and knowing that this interview was coming up, I went. I, I don't have a copy of it anymore, so I, I went and got it out of the library. And reading it, I realized that you know I had to have this book, so I immediately ordered it from Amazon. <laughs> Expect it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a it's a remarkable book. Uh, and so I did. You know, I did have it one one chance as a journalist. The opportunity to uh, uh, interview uh, Albert Hoffman. Wow! Yeah, I know. He, he came to. He, I was working for the Examiner, and he came down to uh, University of Santa Cruz and uh, gave a talk. And he was introduced by Alexander Shogun, who had a reputation. He made a lot of psychedelics himself. So he said, rather than introduce. You to this audience, we all know who you are. He said, I'm going to tell you about us. <laughs> he said, We're the ones who have taken your trip. And it was interesting. Leary was there, and uh, Ramdas was there too. I had met Ramdas before, but I never met Leary. And uh, it, was a, it was a most interesting event because Hoffman would. Had a blackboard and he would write these chemical formulas for LSD out on the board, and the audience would erupt in cheers. <laughs> that kind of a meeting. <laughs> you know, 
And did I hear you say that you interviewed well, Hoffman? Later on, I talked with him. You know. Did you memorialize, did you the, memorialize interview? the interview? I, I did. I wrote about it for the examiner. And I've, I've been looking for the article. I can't find it. So, <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry I could read it to you. But uh, yes, I did write a story about it. Do you think you could you find, think that you article? Could find that article? I wish. I've been looking for it. I know where I know where it is. I know where the book of James is, but I haven't been able to find the book. I pasted the clipping. But doesn't wouldn't the newspaper itself have a copy of it in their archives somewhere? They might. The examiner has changed hands, I think. So I don't. I don't really know. Uh, whether or not they do or not. I, and I couldn't give them a date. Maybe, maybe I could look up the uh, roots in Santa Cruz and see what date the Kaufman actually came there. I could dig it out, maybe. Well, if you could find it, I'd sure like to see it. And maybe we could include it in this book, Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. It might have a place in there. Okay, I'll look well, for it. Yeah, see what you can do. Um, you mentioned before that you'd like to do some uh, psychedelic medicine again. Um, w tell us a little about that interest. What would you What would you be looking for, and what might you do different? I'm just going to definitely pay attention to setting, 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 setting. It's not that I haven't really had those experiences before, because sometimes, I, sometimes the setting was very nurturing. Uh huh. Uh, uh huh. Uh, it was an accident. <laughs> Wouldn't really try for it, but uh, were I to take LSD again or any psychedelic again, I would, I would do so in a, in a uh, comfortable and safe and nurturing place. You're aware that Huxley took LSD as he was what we call dying. Yeah, yeah I've heard that. We also, incidentally, he sort of recommended mescaline as a as a, uh, a regular a, a church sacrament. He said the, the church was too much concerned with alcohol, bread and wine, you know. But he felt that uh, they should give abandoned alcohol <laughs> from the services on mescaline, <laughs> which was, uh, let's say, a brave idea. What do you think of the uh, concept of taking LSD as one is passing to the passing on? Sounds like an interesting idea. You know, I can't be that far away from it myself, but uh, at the moment, well, you, I've, really, I've really gotten into your, you know, you taught me well about living in the here and now. And uh, if you live in the here and now, you know, there isn't any time. That's, that's right. That's the best part of it. That's right. When you live in the here and now, there is no time. Right. So even though actuarially, you know, who knows, uh, you might not have that many years to live, I'm here now. Well, banish that thought from your head and stay in the here and now. And, 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 and also remember the Blue Zone people who uh, one group of women, are, all 103 and 105, who have been sitting around and having coffee uh, on a weekly basis for the last 95 years. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. When, uh, that one surgeon who's, who's doing surgery at, a, at 100. I, I, you know, I interviewed, he's doing surgery and operating on people at Adventist Hospital, yes. Well, I'm wondering, um, do, let's talk about value system and what we value in life. Do you believe that what you value has been influenced by your use of psychedelic medicines? In a sense, Yes, although I, it's not something that I consciously think much about. I just think that my whole attitude toward the rest of the, the rest of my environment has changed. 
one way that I like. And, uh, um, I don't do the sarcasm anymore. Uh, they call it irony now. <laughs> um, you know, my life is, I haven't, my life is different than it was before. It definitely is. I'm ambitious and uh, I'm not ambitious at all anymore. I, you know, I have a lot of things that I like to do when I do them. And uh, I, I enjoy writing as I never did before. Writing, writing was always you know, something that I did for a living. But uh, I feel better now about what I've been writing and the experience I have of doing it. Something that I, that I, I really noticed in, in Huxley's book, when I read it, he felt, that, he felt that his experiences on mescaline his vision changed, the way he saw things changed. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he compared it to uh, painters, painted artist's vision. And uh, he said that a chair in his, a chair in his, uh, his office that he noticed, he, he fixated on in his first mescaline trip, reminded him of a, of a uh, picture by Van Gogh. And uh, uh, he said he began to think that artists, that Van Gogh had painted his picture of a chair, sort of a yellow chair. Uh, he must have seen that chair in the same way that, that uh, I would, he'd seen his chair in his office. So artists had that kind of vision. And that's true. He also mentioned that uh, painting of draperies was important to artists. And, uh, one of the things that my wife Carolyn does really well. She's an artist, and uh, one of the things I notice most about her pictures is that she, she does incredibly intense pictures of the drapery of, of uh, uh, Native American and uh, Indigenous people. Close it when you talked about Huxley uh, focusing on the chair. It sort of sounded to me a little like when you focused on the sand for those, <laughs> does, for those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you got, right. you, you got. <laughs> I, that is, that has got to be a, one of the strangest experiences I ever had because I was fascinated by that sand, which I just couldn't stop looking at it. <laughs> Mike, Mike was amazed. So well, you. You probably saw things in the sand that you'd never seen before by it's focusing patterns. the patterns. patterns. Yeah. 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 Indeed. What kind What kind of set you think your your setting would be a much quieter setting this time? Well, probably be right where I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, it might be at a beach, but home is fine. Yeah, nice, is nice, quiet home, indeed. And in, in, in fact, you know, I'm going to do it. So I'm just bring my hands on some So, do you see a future? There's a what's re referred to as a renaissance in psychedelics going on right now. Do you see what place do you see that they have in the culture? Well, that's too hard. But I do, I do, I really welcome the fact that so many people are being are talking about uh, LSD or the psychedelics, and that uh, and they're really their use is apparently coming back. Gathered with the people who were doing this, uh, really calling for only take a little tiny bit every every couple of days. Uh, it's, it's it's it seems to be happening again, and uh, only in a different way. I interviewed one fellow 
who took a microdose of LSD twice a week for nine months. And he claims that he made significant positive changes in his personality. He, he said that prior to doing this, he was considered himself with, withdrawn, inhibited, and uh, sort of pulled in, contracted. And uh, he said by, by this experience, he really came out in the world in a whole different way in his relationship with people and his relationship with himself and with the world. I'm not a bit surprised. Have you had the opportunity to microdose? Not, not uh, only uh, for one, 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 ex one dose. You know, I, I gather that microdosing is something that you need to do all the time. And well, had that opportunity. Yeah, it's about it's approximately a thirtieth of what you were taking back then. It's a ten, ten to twelve. 10 to 12 micrograms and uh but over time is what we're saying well i don't think i don't think you need to take it over time to get the feeling you can take it once and and you'll under get something no question about it because it's sub it's sub rosa the interesting thing about microdosing is you don't really know you've taken something until it's over and then sort of retrospectively you have this sense and then the next time it's familiar so you know you're you're taking it when you're taking it but it is so um sub rose is the best way i could describe it because uh i i think this um Ayelet waldman in her book a really good day really says it you know after 20 years suffering from bipolar taking every medicine in the world, she took the microdose. And at the end of the day, she said to her husband, you know, I just realized I just had a really good day. And <laughs> that was so unusual for her that she, you know, that she realized it. So it's more like that. It, whereas your experiences you had while they were going on, you were extremely aware of them. This is more a, a, a retrospective almost. <laughs> Yeah. That didn't happen to me. The one time I, I yes, yeah. So we're coming to the end of our time. I see it's a little after ten. Um, anything else you might want to add to your confessions as a psychedelic elder? No, the, the thing I get most out of it, Richard, is that I, I like myself better. I feel I feel sane, even though I do think other people might consider crazy. I feel I feel a sense of being okay in my life. I think I think that is I think that is the most positive thing that a person can say that uh, that you you came away liking yourself better. I know. And I made friends more easily, too. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that I had those, those experiences, and uh, I think they changed my life, and I'm glad they did. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. So far, you are our most senior confessor of psychedelic experiences, and I... You came late, but I, I want you to know that I want to make a date so that I interview you again around the time of your 100th birthday. You're on. <laughs> and let's see what further experiences you've had by then that you can bring to us. So thanks. Thanks for being here today, Cliff. Okay. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, with special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, and our terrific IT specialist, David Springer, both of whom, working together as a team, make this broadcast possible. The preceding program was brought to you 
by the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, he's a personal friend of mine. He's a social worker and political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world by getting them some of the money that is made in the coffee industry that before Paul, they did not get. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends soon to have CBD in them. Paul donates 20% of all internet sales of these mind, body, health, and politics special blends to the COVID Response Network. Check that out on Google, COVID Response Network. It's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. So go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy some mind, body, health, and politics coffee, support the COVID Response Network, and spare injury and save lives, save lives. This program is a, a COVID response network, is a model program for other community-based programs. Join me again next Tuesday at nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.